Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Malberti. I hope you enjoyed last week's special episode. And today we are going to begin the Beatles' solo careers, starting after their public breakup in 1970. Before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us on social media and with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get to it. Solo Beatles Part 1. 1970 was truly a remarkable year for George Harrison. He had just hit his stride as a songwriter, and he had been lavished in the rock press as a hero on Abbey Road after he wrote Here Comes the Sun, and after he hit number one with Something. He also covered the album with really impressive, confident guitar playing. In the period between John quitting the band and Paul telling the press that the Beatles were breaking up, George had decided that he was going to begin working on his first real solo album, In the final years of the Beatles, George had accumulated dozens and dozens of songs. And obviously, he couldn't put all of them on Beatles record. I mean, remember, he sometimes usually maybe got one or two slots for his songs. Abbey Road, he only had two slots. Some of the songs were rejected. Some of them were never seriously worked on. And some were kind of kept for himself. With this solo project, George wanted to give himself a creative reset. He wanted to get rid of as many songs as possible. He wanted to clear his shelves and put all of these songs that were stored away onto an album. To do this, he decided to work with the producer Phil Spector. Phil Spector is a weirdo. I mean, in 1970, he was this American producer who was really nervous and anxious. He wore black suits and sunglasses indoors, even if it was 90 degrees, just smoked ciggy after ciggy, had this like crazy, abusive alcoholic side to him. He was later convicted of murder, so this kind of red flag side of him was definitely valid. But in 1970, he was a world-famous producer, and he had overhauled the Beatles' Get Back tapes, created Let It Be, and produced John's uh, Instant Karma, which George played on. So George, by this point, knew Phil Spector pretty well, and all the Beatles liked his work, with the exception of Paul McCartney. So George invited Phil Spector to his house at Friar Park, where he played the producer all of these songs, dressed with an acoustic guitar, and sometimes maybe Ringo and Klaus backing him up, but really bare-bones versions of songs like Run of the Mill, Awaiting on You All, Let It Down, All Things Must Pass. Phil Spector remembered the day George played him all of these songs, saying, quote, I went to George's Friar Park, and he said, I have a few ditties for you to hear. It was endless. He had literally hundreds of songs, and each one was better than the rest. He had all this emotion built up when it was released to me, unquote. With no shortage of songs, Phil Spector and George Harrison got to work on George's first studio album that would be called All Things Must Pass. From the opening sessions, All Things Must Pass was going to be a pretty unconventional album, but a really successful one. First of all, the musicians that George invited to form the core band in the studio were the best in the world. I mean, George and Eric Clapton on guitars, Bobby Whitlock on keys, Jim Gordon and Ringo Starr on drums, Klaus Vorman and Carl Radel on bass, Bobby Keys on saxophone. I mean, he even had musicians like Peter Frampton, Alan Price, Billy Preston, Gary Wright, and a bunch of others featured on this record. Interestingly, Eric Clapton, Bobby Whitlock, Jim Gordon, and Carl Radel 
had such a blast playing with each other on the All Things Must Pass sessions, the four would go on to form Derek in the Dominoes later that year. And of course, they'd go on to release Layla and other assorted love songs, that amazing uh, rock and roll album. The production style was very interesting as well. Phil Spector was known for his trademark wall of sound style where he would just put so many instruments and uh, reverb and texture onto the mix so that it would all kind of blend together and make a big sort of impenetrable wall of sound. George and Spectre took this wall of sound approach to the absolute max on All Things Must Pass. It's one of the most uniquely produced albums I've ever heard. There's nothing else quite like it. I mean, that doesn't mean it's perfect. A lot of people think All Things Must Pass is overproduced, and I would have to agree that a lot of the songs are, although the production does fit some of the more laid-back songs like Behind That Locked Door and Run of the Mill, and it's hard to argue with the guitar sound on My Sweet Lord, but George later kind of disliked just how produced uh, this album was. I mean, it, it's really, there's a lot going on, um, and, and it's, it's definitely an acquired taste. But George was also a lot different from uh, Beatle George. When it was a Beatles song, the person who wrote the song would tell everyone else how to play their parts. George really was much more laid back than that. I mean, he was playing with some of the best uh, players in the world. I mean, he's not going to tell Eric Clapton how to play a guitar lick. Uh, he, he would just kind of say, you know, I have this song. Let's work on it. Arrange it however you want. A lot like how the band operated, how Robbie Robertson would write a song and Levon Helm would add the drum and the vocal arrangement and, you know, Garth would add his uh, keyboard parts. The environment George and the band were playing in was a unique one. It was a creative one, a collaborative one. And, you know, a lot of the time they were hanging out in this new rundown mansion, Friar Park, that George had bought. Uh, and he was renovating it, and he'd have dozens of musicians sleeping in, you know, old beds or sleeping bags. He'd have members of the Hare Krishna community staying there. Everyone was sleeping, cooking, partying. I mean, it was kind of madness. They would rehearse all of his songs at Friar Park, and then they'd go off to London all day and record All Things Must Pass before returning to have a big party. It was a very a family environment. Uh, George definitely wasn't like a dictator in the studio. With a producer and a band, George got started on All Things Must Pass with a song he wrote in 1969 when he quit the Beatles during the Get Back sessions, a song called Wawa. Lyrically, the song is a pretty clear jab at Paul and John, and Beatlemania in general, with words like, You made me such a big star, and I know how sweet life can be if I keep myself free. One thing I love about this song is the interplay between George Harrison and Eric Clapton. I mean, George wrote this really kind of hard-driving electric guitar riff, and then Eric Clapton comes over at the same riff, just with the wah, and then they just are pretty much jamming, playing so much electric guitar just, you know, with each other. I love moments like that. George then overdubs a bunch of slide guitar licks, uh, and, and really, it's just a huge, big electric song, and they had a great time recording it, but when George went back to the control room to hear it, he was kind of not that pleased with it. I mean, the style of the production was really kind of shocking, so different from a Beatles songs. Uh, and there were, like, like I said, so many musicians on this, but they all kind of drowned out and, and blended together. Kind of sounded weird and muted. But George just accepted that this was Spectre's style. Spectre was very, very persuasive. And, you know, he ended up liking it at the time and adopting this production style for the rest of the album. And Wawa is definitely a standout on, on this album. 
probably George's biggest influence on All Things Must Pass is still Bob Dylan and the band. And like I said, the collaborative environment was definitely drawn from George's uh, witnessing the band and their creative process. But there's also a definite like folky kind of faux Americana vibe to this record. And George was really influenced by Bob Dylan and, and him and Bob were becoming really good friends. When Bob first met the Beatles, he was interested in John because John was kind of the philosophical one. But his reclusive and shy nature really drew him more and more to George. And George was absolutely obsessed with Bob Dylan's music. He was his favorite artist by far, and the two briefly began writing together in 1968 to 1970. In Woodstock, when George was showing Bob some of the many chords that he knew, uh, they stumbled on a chord progression and ended up co-writing I'd Have You Any Time, which would go on to open up All Things Must Pass. I'd Have You Any Time features a really pretty guitar part by Eric Clapton, one of my favorites, and he also covered Dylan's If Not For You, which he recorded with Bob for his New Morning album in 1970. The two decided both to include it on their solo albums because they liked the song so much. On George's version, uh, there's like a gorgeous country slide guitar part. Behind That Locked Door is a pretty straightforward country folk song inspired by Bob Dylan and the band. Actually, another one allegedly written about George's attempts to get close to Bob and Bob kind of closing off and shying away whenever the two would become too close. Then you have Apple Scruffs, which is an acoustic-driven harmonica song dedicated to all the female fans who would wait outside Savile Row in hopes to see the Beatles. It was a love song for the fans and stylistically very Dylan-esque, a driving uh, guitar part and a nice harmonica riff. Really, really fun song. All Things Must Pass also introduced the world to a very different guitar player, George Harrison, the slide player. George had never played slide on a Beatles record. Now, if he was playing lead guitar, it was usually with a bottleneck on his pinky finger. The slide which he picked up on tour with Delaney and Bonnie was just right for him. It was smooth, soulful, laid back, not too flashy, but unique. Very few people played slide guitar, especially in the United Kingdom. And if they did, they were usually blues aficionados, like Brian Jones was a, a slide player. And Dwayne Allman was a, an amazing slide player, but an American one. George played a pure, melodic rock and roll style, style slide, not really that bluesy. And it quickly became his signature sound. George played slide all over All Things Must Pass. Some of my favorite guitar parts are like George's slide solo in Isn't It a Pity and Beware of Darkness. Isn't It a Pity is another song that George wrote in the Beatles but was never seriously recorded. It was brought to numerous sessions uh, but again it just kind of got brushed under the rug and he decided to revive it for All Things Must Pass and he turned it into this big dark drone of a song with tons of guitars, really personifying Spectre's wall of sound. I think Eric Clapton once said that this was one of his favorite George Harrison songs. Lyrically, it's pretty fascinating too. Uh, George Harrison said of the lyrics, quote, isn't it a pity is about whenever a relationship hits a down point. It was a chance to realize that if I felt somebody had let me down, there's a good chance I was letting someone else down, unquote. The song was written long before the Beatles broke up, but there are definitely parallels in the lyrics. And George knew this was the case. He even added some Hey Jude style na-na-na-na's at the end to make sure we all got that too. Wawa and Isn't It a Pity are definitely uh, messages towards or about the Beatles, but no song was as direct as Run of the Mill, which is one of my all-time favorite songs. 
Run of the Mill is about the failing relationships between the Beatles, especially between George Harrison and Paul McCartney. George was particularly salty about Paul's more stubborn, controlling side, and he felt that McCartney could be too overly critical uh, about everyone around him, musically and dealing with business. Harrison seems also to be criticizing Paul for what he interprets as Paul putting his friends behind his own personal musical ambitions, with lines like, How high will you leap, and will you make enough for you to reap it? Only you'll arrive at your own made end, with no one but yourself to be offended. It's you that decides. He also seems to plead with his old friend with the line, As the days stand up on end, you've got me wondering how I've lost your friendship, but I see it in your eyes. Now, George was always quite salty about Paul McCartney through the years. And, you know, there's two sides to every story, but this is definitely a song directed uh, towards his failing relationship with Paul. Another pretty obvious theme on this album is God. Uh, This is a very spiritual album, and George is often singing about life, death, rebirth, and God. In songs like Hear Me, Lord, The Art of Dying, and the title track All Things Must Pass, and Awaiting on You All. But none more obviously, and perhaps more famously, than My Sweet Lord. My Sweet Lord began as a song that George wrote on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, Uh, when he was trying to write a gospel song. And he and Billy Preston began riffing with the words, Oh my Lord and my sweet Lord. George actually gave the song to Billy Preston to record on his album for Apple, but then he decided that he wanted to record it too. Phil Spector had left the All Things Must Pass sessions for a kind of a big chunk of time in the middle. He had some drinking problems and he flew back to LA. I mean, kind of an eccentric guy, as I said. So George and the engineers had taken over producing the album. When it came time to record My Sweet Lord, though, Spectre was back in fighting shape, and he wanted My Sweet Lord to really have a unique sound. The core of the band was drums, bass, keys, with a bunch of acoustic guitar players. You know, George, Eric, Peter Frampton, uh, and a bunch of others got together and just strummed the same hypnotic chord progression. They tried to get it; ex- they wanted to do the strums at the exact same time. Uh, and there is a hypnotic element to My Sweet Lord. You know, there's a mantric element, and that's because it was inspired by chanting and mantras, uh, which Harrison would do for hours and hours on end, much to his wife, Patty Boyd's chagrin. Harrison said, quote, My sweet Lord has got a mantra in there, and mantras are, well, they call it a mystical sound vibration encased in the syllable. Once I chanted it for like three days nonstop driving through Europe, and you just get hypnotized, unquote. George also adds a really lovely and distinctive slide guitar part, which sounds simple but has guitar harmonies that made it pretty difficult to record. Phil Spector remembers recording the solo, quote, My sweet lord must have taken about 12 hours to overdub the guitar solos. He must have had that in triplicate, six-part harmony, before he decided on a two-part harmony. Perfectionist is not the word. He was beyond that. He just had to have it so right. He would try and try and experiment upon experiment. He'd do the same with background vocals, unquote. These guys had been working on All Things Must Pass for months, and George was not ready to stop. I mean, this was a big deal for him. This was his way of proving to the world that he was more than just the quiet beetle in the tall shadow of Lennon and McCartney. In this way, George probably let the album get a bit overproduced, and he probably would have kept chipping away at it had it not been for Phil Spector urging him to put a bow on it and, and release it. 
In the end, he had so many songs that even after narrowing it down, they still had to release a triple album. I mean, this was literally unheard of. He was the first rock star to release a three-disc album, and very few people have done it since. There are just so many songs on this thing. I mean, the third disc is a little less cohesive, consists of extended 10-minute jams, uh, and, you know, the band playing, you know, a birthday song for John Lennon, for example. The big test for All Things Must Pass would be its release and its reception. There was a definite sense of anticipation. George had been the talk of the town in the music industry since something, and word was getting out about his star-studded album sessions. George was initially reluctant to release a single. He just wanted to release the album, but Apple and Phil Spector convinced him to release a single, and Phil Spector had no doubt in his mind which song it had to be. It had to be My My Sweet Lord. Uh, George was against it. He thought the song was too religious and would put people off, but Spectre thought the music spoke for itself. It was just too catchy. It had to be the single, and Phil Spectre was right. In late November of 1970, All Things Must Pass was released with tremendous success. The triple album was presented in a box with a black and white photo of a hippie-looking George Harrison sitting on a chair surrounded by gnomes, epic album cover. It topped charts all over the world, most notably spending weeks at number one in the UK and the United States. Critics loved it, and the symbol the symbolism of the whole thing was lost on no one. The album... Uh, was called All Things Must Pass, and that's hard to separate from the recent breakup of the Beatles. And the sheer number of songs on the album was also seen as a message, pretty much telling his former bandmates and the world that they'd been holding him down and that he had no trouble writing songs without them. He didn't need the Beatles. My Sweet Lord was released in early 1971 and topped the charts, becoming one of the biggest hits of the decade. And just a few weeks later, Harrison released What Is Life, which is pretty straightforward, kind of a pop song with an excellent fuzzy guitar riff, and that cracked the top 10 too. George Harrison was the first Beatle to have both a number one album and a number one single. And after the breakup of the Beatles, George wowed his former bandmates and the world with this gigantic piece of work that really launched him into superstardom. And for a brief moment, George Harrison was the most famous pop star in the world. All Things Must Pass was a triumph, no question about it, and it definitely fueled some competition between the Beatles for years to come. The whole time that George Harrison was recording All Things Must Pass, John Lennon was working on his first solo album called John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. This would also be a symbolic departure from and message about the Beatles. John had been doing primal scream therapy with psychologist Arthur Yanov, who was helping John get to the root of his anger. I mean, John's life was filled with trauma. His father uh, abandoned him when he was a young kid. His mother left him and sent him to live with his aunt. Then she died when he was just 17. His uncle's death when he was 15. Beatlemania, his failed marriage, Yoko Ono's multiple miscarriages. Uh, you know, John was always kind of looking to find an answer to all this pain in his life. And at one time it was music, it was rock and roll, then it was drugs, then it was meditation, uh, you know, and, you know, he's always fine looking for a guru. And this time it was Arthur Yanov and scream therapy. For the first time, instead of running from his problems, though, and covering them up with something, he was embracing them and really attempting to deal with his deep rooted pain. 
The album that was written, written in 1970 was all about this pain and this process. You know, never before and never again would John write such vulnerable, emotional, personal songs about some of the most foundational events uh, and relationships in his life. Stylistically, John wanted to get far away from the Beatles' style. He didn't want this to be a perfect-sounding record. Uh, he didn't even want this to be a particularly melodic record. Melody was always associated with Paul and George Martin. You know, he wanted to be himself. He wanted it to be lyrically driven, raw, stripped back, minimal overdubs, rocking. Uh, he chose to work with Phil Spector, who was kind of shuttling back and forth between recording studios. Uh, and the core of the band was really simple. It was just John on piano, vocals, and, and guitar, Klaus Vorman on bass, and Ringo Starr on drums. Some of Ringo's best work, in my opinion, is on John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. The drumming is phenomenal. The album opens with four tolls of a funeral bell before John, Ringo, and Klaus start with the album opener, Mother. In Mother, which is one of John's best vocal performances and one of his masterpieces, he opens up with the lyrics, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I wanted you, you didn't want me. The song addresses his father as well and ends with John actually employing this primal scream therapy as he sings, Mama, don't go, Daddy, come home. Overall, the album is sad. I mean, it's a sad, raw, emotional album, but there are some real rockers on it too, like the electric guitar-driven Well, 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 and I Found Out. And the chugging remember, I love those songs. They're just straight rock and roll songs. There's also songs like Hold On and Isolation that are about Working Class Hero, which is a kind of social commentary. And then he also has Love, which is one of his best songs as well, and it's a love song for Yoko Ono. The album is really bare bones in the best possible way, like I said, just simple drums, bass, guitar, and piano. And John's vocals are just so real sounding. There are almost no effects, and the double tracking is intentionally not perfect. It's not meant to be a perfect sounding voice. It's meant to be sound, sound real and emotional. But it all adds up to be a really fantastic record. I mean, the album caused a lot of controversy because of its subject matter, and not the revealing emotional side, right? I mean, that was controversial, but John was controversial. I mean, he was the guy who did the bed-ins. He was the guy who stood naked on an album cover. People used to the shock value. What really got people was John's denunciation of the Beatles. Probably the song that ruffled the most feathers was the second-to-last song on the album, God. The song is overtly irreligious, which is controversial in and of itself, but like I said, that's not what got people. People knew John was controversial. What set the music industry on fire was what John said about the Beatles in the song and about Beatle John Lennon. He just completely renounced it. If there was any hope that the Beatles would patch things up, John Lennon put that hope to rest in this song. God begins with John stating that God is a concept by which we measure our pain, which is followed by John listing a bunch of things he doesn't believe in, from Jesus to yoga to Gita to Hitler to Kennedy— he renounces some of his musical heroes. I don't believe in Elvis. I don't believe in Zimmerman, which he meant Bob Dylan. And finally, I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me, Yoko in me, he follows that with. In any case, Beatles fans were heartbroken. And if they weren't heartbroken enough, John goes on to twist the knife and makes his break with the Beatles even clearer. In, at the end of God, he says, I was the dream weaver, but now I'm reborn. I was the walrus, but now I'm John. 
And so, dear friends, you'll just have to carry on. The dream is over. Brutal, Johnny. Just brutal. Good song, though. John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band is a fantastic record. I think it's his best, though back in 1970, the reviews were mixed. Certainly wasn't the most commercial piece of music. I mean, there was no single. John didn't know what to put out as a single, so they decided Mother, even though that's not a traditional commercial single song. But Mother's a great song. Didn't really crack the top 40, so it's not a hit. But the album was well-received enough. I think a lot of critics consider it to be one of his best albums, but there was no question that, you know, he released it within months of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, and John and Paul were both completely outshone by George Harrison, who was topping the charts, was the talk of the town. Everybody loved All Things Must Pass. And I think at the time, the masterpiece, in my opinion, that was John Lennon Plastic Ono Band was a little overlooked. Nineteen seventy was a year where all four Beatles released solo albums, right? Paul released McCartney, which was a number one album with a hit single, Maybe I'm Amazed, but the album was not very well received. It was a number one probably because of the name and it was one of the first Beatles solo albums. And even Paul admits wasn't really his best work. I mean, it's a cool album, objectively cool. Paul plays every instrument on it. But the rock and roll press and the Beatles weren't really blown away. You know, they really thought it was underwhelming. That's the best you can do. Ringo also released an album, Sentimental Journey, with the single Boku of Blues, but it's kind of a strange album, not really very commercial, and it was overlooked and quickly forgotten. I mean, it wasn't really an attempt at a pop record, so nobody was really surprised. Ringo spent most of his time playing on John and George's records in, in early 1970. It was also the peak of his film career, so he was pretty busy. But Ringo's days as a solo pop star were really just around the corner. I'll talk about that next week. Probably one of the most important things that came out of the year 1970 was John Lennon's interview with the Rolling Stone editor, Jan Wenner. Now, this interview is pretty fascinating, and it has probably shaped more Beatle narratives than any other primary source, kind of called the Lennon Remembers narrative. From a historical perspective, the Lennon Remembers narrative is pretty problematic because it's very biased. John was very angry and bitter during this period, and he definitely felt like he was being upstaged by Paul and George. And he was also in the middle of this like emotional primal scream state. Uh, and the Jan Wenner interview was kind of at the peak of John's, you know, anger and enthusiasm against the Beatles. The Jan Wenner interview, interview is amazing, though. I mean, it's three hour talk with John Lennon and Yoko by his side. Uh, usually when Yoko talks, John like quickly interrupts her, or corrects what she says, which is interesting. I mean, you can hear this whole thing on YouTube. I recommend that you do. Um, John talks about pretty much everything, his childhood, politics, religion, Rolling Stone, Dylan, The Who, of course, The Beatles. John uses the interview to pretty much destroy the entire myth of The Beatles, and he more or less trashes his bandmates uh, and George Martin, the fans, and much of Beatlemania in general. Obviously, the most explosive comments are what I'm going to talk about, but 
that's not representative of the whole interview. He says a lot here. Um, you know, he talks about the drug-fueled orgy that was the Beatles on tour. He compared it to Fellini's Satyricon. Uh, he pretty much dismissed George Martin's role and said that George Martin and Paul were more compatible musically. John preferred non-melodic melodic rock, and Paul and George Martin were more melody pop stars, kind of thought it was cheesy. John wasn't exactly nice about George Harrison's music either, which he had heard just a few weeks before the interview and was apparently blown away. When George showed him a few tracks from All Things Must Pass, reportedly John was just gobsmacked and, and about the sheer amount of material and the quality, and he left the recording studio pretty jealous. Uh, when he sat down to talk with Jan Werner, though, a few weeks later, he dismissed George's music as, quote, All right, at home I wouldn't play that kind of music. I don't want to hurt George's feelings. I don't know what to say about it, unquote. John continued about George, quote, His talents have developed over the years, and he was working with two fucking brilliant songwriters, and he learned a lot from us. And I wouldn't have minded being George, though the, invis the invisible man, and learning what he learned. And maybe it was hard sometimes because Paul and I are such egomaniacs, but that's the game. So is George. Just give him the chance and he'll be the same. The best thing he's done is within you without you, still for me, unquote. Also in this interview, John confirmed what everyone already knew about Brian Epstein, for example, but nobody said publicly that the late Beatles manager was gay. Uh, he was even, like, mentioned the trip uh, that him and Epstein took to Spain in the early 60s, but denied having a, an affair with Brian Epstein. Uh, John didn't hesitate when talking about uh, his former songwriting partner either. He was not very respectful of Paul. John said of Paul, quote, He's a good PR man, Paul. I mean, he's about the best in the world, probably. He really does a good job. I was surprised the McCartney album was so poor. I expected just a little more because if Paul and I are sort of disagreeing and I feel weak, I think he must feel strong. So I was surprised. And I was glad, too, unquote. At one point, Yoko jumps in to criticize Paul's new album for having, quote, virtually no message, unquote. And John rushes to Paul's defense, saying that it didn't need to have a message, which was a pretty notable part of the conversation for me. John went on to bash Paul for taking over the band leadership after Epstein died and put much of the breakup at Paul's feet. And, you know, this is probably the most enduring myth surrounding the Beatles, uh, and it can be traced back largely to the Jan Werner interview with John Lennon in 1970. I mean, we know from last week, right, that Paul was the only Beatle that really was fighting to keep the band together. Uh, he was depressed by the end of the Beatles, and he even, you know, recorded Beatles music months after John quit the band. John Lennon was also pretty condescending and dismissive about Ringo Starr, uh, you know, saying he was glad Ringo found a path in movies and pretty much saying that Ringo couldn't make it on his own musically. This is pretty annoying considering Ringo drummed on almost every song on his album and was a pretty crucial part. John trashed so much of the Beatles' music. He had hardly a good word to say about any, any song except for Help, Strawberry Fields, In My Life, a few other songs. But mostly he dismissed it as crap, as inauthentic, and he had really few good th good things to say about Paul, George, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, etc. You know, he called the Rolling Stones imitators and Bob Dylan overrated. Really the only positive things that John Lennon said were about some of his Beatles songs and then about his new album, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, which he thought would, quote, scare Paul into doing something good, unquote. The overall tone of this interview, interesting as it is, is pretty obnoxious, in my opinion. I mean, first of all, John is in an awful mood, and he's so angry. 
And all he does is complain about how people treat him, how hard it was being a Beatle, the torture of it all, the challenging life of being an artist, the unfair way people treat him and Yoko. I mean, I think it's artistically cool, obviously, to be that person, to be the rock star that complains about being a rock star. But in reality, really, how hard and how bad could it have been being a rock star? How bad could it have been being a Beatle? I mean, I don't take celebrity complaints about having fun, being rich and famous, being young and doing fulfilling things that seriously. I think it lacks a bit of self-awareness. And I think this whole interview lacks a bit of self-awareness. It's fascinating. I mean, it's an epic interview. And so much of Beatles history uh, is sort of seen through this lens. For some reason, I have no idea why this interview just really shaped so much of how we talked about the Beatles. I think it's because this was right after the Beatles broke up. It was fresh. George had just released an album. John was releasing an album. The album that John was releasing was explosive. You know, I don't believe in Beatles, all that. And I think just that explosion of of new juicy information, we're going to find out what life was like inside the Beatles, really kind of just for a couple months, shaped the rock press. I mean, it was all everyone talked about. So I think a lot of the narratives come from just the sheer excitement of finally being able to hear what broke up the Beatles, what was going on. And a lot of that comes from this 1970 interview with Jan Werner. Keep that in mind when you listen to this interview. It's endlessly fascinating, I promise you. But take everything John Lennon says with a grain of sand. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast, Solo Beatles Part 1. Listen to All Things Must Pass. Listen to Plastic Ono Band, uh, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. Phenomenal records. Uh, you know, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. That's how I talk to you all. Uh, and uh, don't forget to share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Share us on social media. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, one of my favorite periods in the solo Beatles career, 1971. You know, John Lennon's Imagine, Paul McCartney's Ram, the concert for Bangladesh, Ringo Starr's It Don't Come Easy, more Apple stuff, more business stuff. Tune in. Uh, I'll see you all next week. And until then, listen to the Beatles. The Beatles.